Hello, happy holidays, and welcome to another edition of the First Impressions series here at There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. As always, I'm your host, TK. If you are enjoying the show, you can follow me at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, where you can also reach out to me with your first impressions of the amazing, mind-blowing film that is Spider-Man No Way Home. As listeners of the show know, pretty much every episode here at There Was an Idea is fully spoiled. But especially because this film just came out, I feel the need to emphasize a tremendous spoiler warning right here at the top. I am going to talk about the film in detail and not spoiler-free first impressions, okay? And I'm also going to make reference to the current running series Hawkeye, including spoilers through through episode five, the most recent episode that aired. So Spider-Man No Way Home. It's been breaking records since its trailer dropped in terms of the number of views the trailer got online, just the amount of hype. This has been a huge year for the MCU with the Disney Plus shows premiering, with Black Widow, Shang-Chi, and Eternals, which are all very different movies for the MCU, all have a unique place that they hold in the MCU. It's been a big year, and especially after 2020 with how the pandemic created changes in our movie-going habits and pushed back a lot of release dates for huge movies, including MCU movies. It's kind of unbelievable to think about how we're at the end of this 2021 year and looking back at all that the MCU has given us. Spider-Man No Way Home was primed for success. The pre-sale ticket numbers and the trailer views, obviously an early indication of that. As of this recording, which I'm doing on Saturday, December 18th, the film has charted the second best opening day in the history of the domestic box office, which is insane, second only to Avengers Endgame, and considering the fact that many people are still making theater-going decisions based on the presence of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is very significant. Audiences and critics alike are glowing over this film, which is not to say that there aren't things that we can't nitpick, And it's not to say that everyone universally feels the same way about the movie, but the feeling of hype and excitement around this movie right now feels matched only by the level of hype and excitement for big event films like Infinity War and Endgame. And this movie is. It is an event film. I went on Thursday at 3.15 right after work, and even at 3.15, the IMAX theater was pretty much completely packed. There were some empty seats like right at the front of the screen. But looking at the AMC app, I noticed that all of the showings later that day in Dolby and IMAX were totally sold out, and the excitement was real. There were people dressed as Spider-Man in the lobby of the theater, taking pictures, and it was just something so exciting to be a part of. Countless moments during the film, people cheered and clapped and were audibly touched in one way or another, whether it be through joy and laughter or through sadness. Oh, I cannot get over what a crazy, incredible theater experience it was. And I'm going again soon. I've been busy, which is why I haven't had an opportunity to go on Friday or on Saturday. But I will be going tomorrow, which is Sunday the 19th. And I'm sure you are going to hear another episode of me talking about the film after seeing it for a second, third, etc. time because there's so much to get into, and I think I'm only going to scratch the surface today with my first impressions. 
And then, of course, as I always do on There Was an Idea, I'm going to do a full analytical deep dive with a guest or so on Spider-Man No Way Home. But I think what I'm going to do is wait until the film is out on streaming and physical media to give some time for it to land and for me to think more deeply about it and, and find the perfect guest to talk about this film with. Speaking of perfect guests, I recently did an episode with Trey of MCU Need to Know on Spider-Man and his cultural impact. We talked about what makes Spider-Man the most popular superhero in the world. And we talked about what makes a good portrayal of Spider-Man in our opinion. And we shared some of our Spider-Man superlatives. I'm so glad that we did that episode ahead of No Way Home because some of the things that we were talking about were in my mind as I was watching this movie. So if you haven't checked that out yet and you're interested, that episode is called the Spider-Man episode with Trey of MCU Need to Know. So if you're impatient and you're wishing that I would just go ahead and start talking about the movie itself already, don't worry, I'm about to do that now. This film, Spider-Man No Way Home, blew my mind in how effectively it was able to balance so many characters, so many villains, how it was able to simultaneously look ahead and propel the storytelling of the MCU forward, while also looking back, reflecting on the history of Spider-Man in live action movies, and really considering that question that Trey and I were talking about, which is, what makes Peter Parker who he is? I'll be honest, I think anytime a movie is so hyped up, it's easy to get wrapped up in that and get your hopes up and hear the different rumors and fall into a trap of speculating so much that you end up being disappointed or your expectations aren't met. And that was completely not the case with this movie. I was a little bit worried that it would be, to be honest. I love Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. I think Vulture and Mysterio are some of the best villains in the MCU. And I love Tom Holland's portrayal of the character, as I spoke about on the Spider-Man episode. I think he is a perfect Spider-Man. That being said, one of the things that those movies focused on, and by design, and necessarily, in my opinion, they focused on Peter being 18, wanting to be an Avenger so bad, calling Happy Hogan nonstop, figuring out some tough lessons, needing to get punished in a way by Tony Stark. Far From Home brought us to that next level of emotional depth with him because he has to reckon with the loss of Tony. But there was still something that was keeping me from feeling an emotional connection with Peter Parker in the MCU. I think because the story felt very much like a teenage coming-of-age story, and again, I think that's important. I think that's necessary to who Spider-Man and Peter Parker are, as we talked about. But where I'm at in my life, that's not necessarily going to be the story that I really feel in a deep emotional way, in the way that I've felt, in the way that I've emotionally been able to tap into some of the other MCU films. But Spider-Man No Way Home is one of those films where I can completely feel the emotions of the character in the present. And it delivered the growth that I was dying to see in Tom Holland's Peter Parker. He's not a plucky kid anymore. He's already been through so much loss and he keeps his optimism. I talked about this with Trey and this is a quality we like about Peter. But this movie takes it to a next level of loss and despair and dealing with the consequences of his actions in a way that he hasn't had to deal with them yet in the MCU. But at the same time, it's consistent with who his character is in the MCU, in the in the previous films we've seen him in. It feels like a natural progression. It continues the trend started by Homecoming and Far From Home of having stakes for Peter that are very personal and connected to where he's at in his life. So in Homecoming, this is as simple as the homecoming dance in his high school life and trying to get a date with the girl that he likes and balancing his academic responsibilities with, with his work 
as Spider-Man and Far From Home. He wants to go on the school trip and he keeps being interrupted from having his moment with MJ because of his Spider-Man work. And in this film, despite and in addition to how how huge the stakes are ultimately for not just Peter, but many people across multiple universes and the world of the MCU as we know it, there's also that sense of personal stakes. He's graduating high school, he wants to get into MIT, and he wants to be able to go with his best friend and his girlfriend. One of the things that Trey and I talked about when we talked about the appeal of Spider-Man is that there is an accessibility to understanding him, his powers, his desires. And I think this film invites viewers who perhaps haven't seen a Spider-Man movie in a while, who maybe aren't fully up to date with the MCU or even with Spider-Man in the MCU. It brings us in with a story that feels recognizable and relatable. This movie also brings the pain. <laughs> and I think many listeners have heard me talk before about how much I really enjoy the stories that bring that pain and that suffering and that grief. I don't know if it's just I'm a glutton for punishment or what it is. But I love learning about who these characters are when they're absolutely at their lowest in these worst moments. What choices are they going to make? And I'm always very taken with the characters who make the choice to sacrifice. Captain America, Black Widow are my favorite characters in the MCU, and they both have that, that sacrificial nature. And we see Peter exhibit this in this movie in a way that he hasn't before. Because despite the fact that he's already experienced the loss of Tony Stark and being blipped and all of this, he's brought to an extreme emotional nadir in this film with the death of Aunt May. When I tell you how emotional this made me, I wasn't sure if they were going to do this. When she got hit by Green Goblin's glider, I thought at first, oh my God, are they actually going to kill Aunt May? And then she gets up and she's talking to him and I was like, okay, no. And in that short amount of time, I'm thinking through my brain, no, they won't kill her. It's good for him to have somebody, somebody left, right? I had talked about how in the What If series, that version of Peter Parker had lost Aunt May. And I'm like, I don't think they're going to do it. And then, of course, they do it. And I am upset about this in that I like Marissa Tomei's portrayal of Aunt May. I like her character. I like the relationship she has with Peter in these movies. And so I'm going to miss her. But it was also just such an incredible moment in the story that I... I'm never going to forget the impact of that in that moment. It was so powerful. I think the moment I realized that that was it, that she really was going to die, is when she said to Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. And when I tell you that I cried at that line and the crying just continued when she actually passed, oof, man, it was it was one of the most emotional moments in the MCU for me. And I don't know if that sounds a little bit like a recency bias overstatement type of thing to say. And I'll see how it makes me feel on subsequent watches. But just I don't think I'm going to forget how I felt the first time that I saw that and being surrounded by other people who were similarly just completely stunned into silence. And while I'm never a fan of a character dying in order to propel another character's story forward, I don't think that that's what this is, because I think it made sense within the moment. Certainly, it was a very real way in which a person could actually die if they were in the middle of all that. And it also makes sense for the narrative. I think despite how obnoxious J. Jonah Jameson has been at the end of Far From Home and throughout this movie, No Way Home, how much I can't stand him in the MCU verse, I think Peter needed to actually confront what he was saying. Of course, J. Jonah Jameson is wrong when he's blaming all of the destruction and death on Peter Parker. But I think Peter needed to look at it from this perspective. He needed to confront the fact that his actions do have consequences 
And despite his best intentions, he has made some decisions that that have resulted in a less than beneficial impact. Something to the smaller degree of Ned and MJ not being able to get into MIT because of their association with him, to now something as extreme as the death of his Aunt May. And not only that, but her death brings him to the point where he's questioning what it is that he does. He's questioning who he is. He's questioning his mission and his purpose. And who better to connect Peter Parker back to the core of what his purpose is than other Peter Parkers. And that's why I think it was so successful to see Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire in this film because it didn't feel like a cheap cameo, a moment of fan service. Toby's Peter and Andrew's Peter were really important to the story of this film and really important in encouraging the development of our main character, our Peter. I was surprised at how much they were in the movie, not just to fight alongside Peter and and defeat some bad guys or not necessarily defeat. We'll get back to that in a minute. But the moments in which they were just talking to one another revealed so much about who this Peter character is at his core and what these three different depictions have had to say about Peter. And it was incredibly satisfying as someone who has as someone who has always liked the character and has been a big consumer of pop culture and superhero media in the past 20 years to see Toby Beck and someone who really enjoys intertextuality and self-referential moments in these type of movies. Just to have Toby here, to have Andrew here, I knew it was going to be exciting if it was in fact going to happen, but I didn't realize it would be so fulfilling. Andrew Garfield is so funny and so charming as Peter Parker in this movie. And he was great in his films as well. I've always enjoyed Andrew Garfield. But the way that he leaned into the perceptions of his character, the way that he leaned into uh, Peter 3, was just so great. He's so funny. And he hit the emotional moments as well. The pain that he is still experiencing from not being able to save Gwen is palpable. And he was able to have a little bit of an arc uh, and get some closure on that in this universe, in this film. And I think it's so wonderful that that was able to happen for this version of the character. Of course, I'm referring to his catching MJ and saving her. And and that was another moment that made me cry. And he's crying. And he was just so, so good. The banter and the humor between the three Peters was excellent. The discussion about the web shooters and, and Toby's being naturally organic to his body was just so funny. After I see this movie again, there's going to be a lot more that I want to say about the interaction between the three Peter Parkers. But the last thing that I'll touch on here is I really enjoyed how when the three of them first start fighting in the big final battle, they're not able to really communicate with each other and work effectively as a team until they huddle and Tom Holland's Peter Parker brings up the fact that he has worked in a team before. And this is what makes MCU Peter different. And Trey and I were talking about this as well, that MCU Peter captures a lot of the qualities of the essence of the Peter Parker character, but he also has this relationship to the Avengers and also operates as part of this structure. And it was cool here that that was an advantage that he could bring. Andrew and Toby are able to bring 
wisdom and understanding of the struggles that Peter, our Tom Holland Peter, is currently going through. But Tom Holland Peter is able to share his expertise that he's gained through his experience as being part of that team. I did get kind of worried for a moment that Toby's Peter was going to die. And I enjoyed the payoff of, ah, I've been stabbed before. It was really lovely to see him. And I, I know that he's been out of the spotlight for a while and doesn't really do much acting anymore. I don't know entirely what Toby Maguire as a person's deal is. But as somebody who was 13 in 2002, when that first Spider-Man Sam Raimi film came out, seeing him in the role again, how could that not bring up so many feelings of nostalgia and appreciation? I do love that he shows up and he's not in his suit, whereas Andrew's in his suit. And the line that Andrews, the line that Andrews Peter says to him about dressing as a youth pastor, it was, it was great. And again, I'm just so impressed with the way that both Andrew and Toby really captured who their Peter was. It really felt like reconnecting with Toby's Peter after all of these years and seeing, seeing what he would be up to. All right. So the other characters in the film, first, Dr. Strange. We learn in this movie that Doctor Strange is not the Sorcerer Supreme. It is Wong who is the Sorcerer Supreme. Got it on a technicality because of the blip. I enjoyed that. Certainly setting up some things for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which of course was also the second credit scene or really just a trailer, which was awesome. So exciting to see Wanda again. And Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness looks like it is going to be insane and I can't wait. But we're not talking about that right now. Doctor Strange in this movie, there were a couple of things that I wasn't sure about. First, he is so incredibly powerful, and it felt like maybe a little bit of a stretch that Peter was both able to consistently outwit him. And I mean, that's Peter's thing is that he's witty. So maybe I'll take this back after seeing it again. But Peter is able to get around the astral projection. I was like, huh, like, how is he really doing that? Is that believable within world? Even the fact that Doctor Strange messes up the spell, I was like, is that really believable in world? I know that Peter is, is distracting him, but still. So these were some questions I had. But again, I it is Peter's movie. And I'm willing to take all of that with a grain of salt. The scene in which they fought in the mirror dimension was so cool. <laughs> I can't wait for Doctor Strange 2 to see more of that kind of stuff. I also appreciate the tension that is evident between Peter Parker's approach to doing what he thinks is right, his approach to being a hero, and Doctor Strange's. Doctor Strange is also a hero. Doctor Strange has saved the world. But Doctor Strange is older and grizzled and certainly wiser. And I think that in terms of the central conflict of this movie around whether or not the villains from the other universes should simply be sent back to their universes. And it's not up to anyone in Peter's world to interfere with that, which is Dr. Strange's perspective. Dr. Strange is thinking about bigger picture, greater good. Uh, but for Peter, he's looking at it on a level of, I, I help people of if I send them back, they're going to die. And of course it helps that these people were not people who were, evil their entire lives these were these villains were all people who became that way because of an error with technology and science and i think you can argue that while they were seeking out a power that perhaps they shouldn't have been seeking out i think that's true of all of them other than sandman who wasn't seeking to become a sand person but we know that he is also not 
the picture of moral perfection because of the choices he's made in his life. It's complex. So regardless, what I'm getting at is Peter Parker is a good guy. Doctor Strange is a good guy. These are both heroes that we root for and that we love. They're both landing on different sides of this argument in a way that Tony and Steve and each of their allies did in Civil War. And I like when the movies ask us to to grapple with that, the fact that there's two people that we like. It's not as simple as here's the good guy, here's the bad guy. Now, I think it also speaks to Peter's relentless optimism and we could say naivete and the way in which he's so impulsive and he's very short-sighted sometimes. We've talked about this before on my episodes about Spider-Man. He makes a lot of mistakes because he is so short-sighted. He wants to help people. He's good. He gets up. He fights. But he's not always thinking about the bigger picture. And so in that way, the decision that he makes in this movie to try to fix Doc Ock and Green Goblin and Lizard and Electro and Sandman is not necessarily the best decision, but it certainly tracks for who his character is. It's consistent with a decision Peter Parker would make. Seeing these five villains back was really cool. I did feel early on, I'm like, okay, there's five of them. Who's going to be the sixth? Is this going to be a Sinister Six type of thing? Are we going to see Vulture? Or is Mysterio going to be not dead? They didn't go there, which was interesting. I was fine with it because Doc Ock is amazing. I loved him so much in this movie. I loved him when he was bad. I loved him when he was good. Uh, these are obviously over sim- overly simplistic terms, but I loved the relationship that he developed with our universe's Peter Parker in such a short time. Alfred Molina is incredible. And Willem Dafoe is incredible. It was so cool to see him here as Green Goblin, to hear him say the line, I'm something of a scientist myself. Uh, that got a huge laugh out of people. And uh, it was cool to see this picture of him as somebody who is really tortured with uh, what what seems like a, a a version of schizophrenia in a way which I don't know how consistent that really is with how he was depicted in the first Spider-Man movie, 2002. But I do like the way it was interpreted here. I like that Peter is feeling the rage and beating the hell out of him uh, before he stopped by Toby, because of course he would feel that rage. Green Goblin is responsible for Aunt May's death. And I also like the scenes in which they were connecting with each other when it's Norman Osborn and it's not Green Goblin. And I think the reason why Norman Osborn comes off as more sympathetic here than in Spider-Man is because we're not seeing him in this like powerful, power-hungry position. We're seeing him as somebody who's been tortured by dealing with this other voice in his head. So I I think it tracks that he that he would be different. Jamie Foxx's Electro was really funny. I thought it was so great when he was talking to Andrew and he was like, oh, you're from Queens, you're helping poor. He's like, I just thought you would be black. And of course, it's a, a fun way of hinting at the arrival of, of Miles Morales in the MCU at some point. But it was also a, a fun moment between Jamie Foxx and Andrew Garfield. Once again, Lizard is underwhelming. Sorry, Lizard. I haven't yet mentioned Matt Murdock's appearance. That got a huge reaction out of the crowd. Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock or Daredevil showing up to represent Peter and Aunt May legally. I think a lot of people were seeing it coming, especially after the events of this week's Hawkeye, where Vincent, where Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin was revealed to be part of the series. But it was really cool to see. I admittedly have not seen all of Daredevil yet. I'm working on it because knowing now that he is officially in the MCU, I'm finally going back and watching Daredevil 
And I really like it so far. It's just been very busy lately. So uh, it's going to take me a little bit to get through it. But even still, it was really cool to see him. And it was so awesome to see the audience reaction. And when he caught that brick coming through the window, that was so cool. Haven't yet spoken about Ned and MJ. Ned and MJ reliably are reliably on Peter Parker's team. When Doctor Strange tells him to go Scooby-Doo this shit, it very much reminded me of in Buffy, the Scooby gang, the crew who may or may not be superpowered themselves, who help their superpowered best friend because they love each other. Ned getting a little bit of magical ability himself in this movie, which was interesting. Interesting that he was able to use the sling ring to open the portals so quickly, it seems. Um, but great. I'm here for it. I'm here for Ned being involved and being able to contribute. And if it wasn't for Ned opening up the portals, we wouldn't have had Andrew and Toby come in. So I thought that that was clever, the way they were able to make that happen. And I do like the reference to someone in Ned's family telling him that uh, that they had the gift or something like that. And now that I'm talking about Ned and MJ, I have to talk about the end of the movie. Peter Parker, man, this movie shows so much growth for this character and so much growth for Tom Holland in his portrayal of him. To make that decision, to make that sacrifice reveals so much about who he is. And I'm talking, of course, about the fact that no one in his life, no one in the world will remember Peter Parker. As Dr. Strange says, it's going to be as if he was never really born. Oof, the emotional stakes here. Does it seem a little bit, I could see people maybe being a little bit critical uh, that this seems unnecessarily extreme. I certainly think it poses a challenge. One of the things that Trey and I talked about, one of the things that he said so articulately on our Spider-Man episode was the fact that what makes Peter Parker Peter Parker comes down a lot to his relationships with other people. So now he's going to be stripped of that. And that's huge. It's And it certainly poses a storytelling challenge if we're going to see more Tom Holland, Peter Parker stories in this world or in others, I suppose. But I got to say, it, it works for me, this decision that he made, because it it made me feel that feeling of that angst, that pain, that suffering, and just that admiration for somebody who's making this sacrifice. I know other people will be just like, oh, you didn't have to do that. Maybe even think it was silly uh, to make that sacrifice, but it spoke to me. I, it got me. And that scene when he goes into the diner and he's ready to talk to MJ. Well, before that, the scene when he says goodbye to Ned and MJ, incredibly emotional. But then he arrives at the diner and he is prepared to share this letter with MJ, but then thinks twice of it when he looks at them and he sees that they're living happy, normal lives. They're going to MIT. MJ is more optimistic than we've seen her before and he notices that cut on her head and he makes a decision to not tell her or at least not tell her yet that was another moment that made me tear up i thought tom holland nailed it in in that scene and the emotion of his moving into this little apartment by himself with his ged book because he's not going to the high school anymore and he has with him very few items but each one of them incredibly significant and representative of a person who He's lost, even though Ned and MJ are alive. He's lost them. He's lost his relationship to them. He has the coffee cup from MJ. He has the Emperor Palpatine Lego figure, representative of Ned. And he has the sewing machine, representative of Aunt May. And you can see that he's creating a new hand-sewn Spider-Man suit. Oh, my God. This is the kind of stuff that I, I eat this up. And it's so perfectly sad. He's made such a selfless choice to give up 
these people to give up the technology that he's gotten used to, the Stark suits, and he's still going out there. And the movie ends with him using the police scanner app to look at some street level friendly neighborhood threats and to swing on out there. And it's absolutely not lost on me that it's Christmas time in New York and he's swinging by the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Coming up on next week's episode of Hawkeye, we know that Clint and Kate are going to be in some form of confrontation at that Christmas tree. And I don't know if this is silly to think about, but I wonder, and certainly I would love it if we see a glimpse of Spider-Man swinging in the background or something like that. I don't think that Tom Holland would be in Hawkeye, but they could certainly use CGI to to show that Spider-Man is also there. And I also wonder if there were any Easter eggs on the police scanner app. It, it shows it on his phone on screen for just a few seconds. And I wonder if there's any Easter eggs in there, if any of that activity is maybe related to Kingpin or something like this. What a movie. I guess the only thing I haven't talked about, I mean, there's a lot that I haven't talked about. There's more I'm going to want to say after seeing the film again, but I haven't touched on the mid credit scene, which I thought was really funny. A lot of people, of course, were speculating if Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock, if Venom was going to show up in this movie. I like the way they did it, that it's there in the mid credit scene, just like there was a mid credit scene after Venom Let There Be Carnage that connected to the MCU world. Eddie Brock, who is getting super drunk and and asking all of these questions about Thanos and the events of, of the MCU. And uh, of course, then we see that after he gets sent right back to his world, there's a little bit of symbiote left over. So that certainly opens a door to where they might go next. Stay tuned for more thoughts from me and guests of the show about Spider-Man No Way Home in the coming weeks. And as always, thank you for listening.